This yes. is hell. All right, then. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell on today's show. The two greatest threats, the two greatest dangers facing humanity worldwide are, in fact, not two threats, but one. And separating them as if they were uniquely distinct from one another means our responses to both will be failures with devastating circumstances and consequences that threaten all life on Earth. For those of us lucky enough to have homes, we're forced to hide inside from a deadly global pandemic. We're advised against physical contact and just being with other humans and what has been normalized into social distancing, all in a vain attempt to, at returning to the normal of climate change that brought us the outbreak to begin with. Yes, COVID-19 and climate change are the same thing. We better start thinking of them as the same or else we'll all die from a plague as the world burns. Not that any establishment media outlet will report that the climate change and the virus were caused by the same market forces. But this is not the media which tries to force the virus to live within the time constraints of breaking news. This is hell. Our guest this morning is Vijay Kolinjavadi, author of the article, This Pandemic is Ecological Breakdown, Different Tempo, Same Song. Comparisons between the toll of COVID-19 and climate change are not helpful because they view each as two separate things. It's an article that originally appeared in Al Jazeera, but you can find in a long-form version at Uneven Earth. That's unevenearth.org. Vijay is a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Development Policy at the University of Antwerp and a contributing editor at Uneven Earth. You can find Vijay on Twitter at Colin Javadi, K-O-L-I-N-J-I-V-A-D-I. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? All right, I don't want to play heel now that I got my green card. Yeah. But when people are coming for our president <laughs> for eating a hamburger and Diet Coke angrily in his bedroom, take a look in the mirror. As someone who's eaten a hamburger and drank a Diet Coke angrily in my bedroom many times before, that's the one thing we've got to lay off him for. Uh, the burgers. You know what Let I... Let people eat their burgers. Let people eat their burgers. One of my weak weaknesses <laughs> is fast food. Yeah. Really bad fast food. Oh, yeah. There is a new brand of a really bad fast food burger that's out right now. That now that it's out and we're under a virus and now I can't go out and have that fast food burger unless I walk up to the drive-thru and pretend I'm in a car. And I don't really feel like making car noises at a drive-thru right now. It just irritates me. I'm not going to tell you which one it is because I don't want to promote their stupid crappy burger. But it just irritates me that one of my very favorite fast food burgers they've just tweaked and made substantially better damn i really want to know about this burger now <laughs> i can't tell you i don't want to tell you. i'll tell you this uh the original burger that it's based on is the official hamburger of the canadian football league there's a tip for you we'll be talking to jay in a few alex will have this week's hangover cure we'll share this week in rotten history and since we last talked here at this is hell this is hell.com. We actually booked guests for the rest of this week's show, so we'll tell you who will be on this week. And we are very, very excited about the lineup of guests we have in store for you. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. 
this week's Hangover Cure is a banana bag. In an article at the website 89.3 FM. Wait, isn't that WNUR's frequency? <laughs> I tuned in WNUR this Saturday morning at 9.30 to see how the show was going. There was dead air. Ooh, that's not good. Then I heard Classical and Beyond start up like halfway through an episode. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know what's going on over there. At least something's getting on the air. In an article... Okay, so in an article at the website, 89.3 FM's KPCC, member-supported news for Southern California, several people are asked, what is their go-to hangover cure? Matt from the city of Orange says his brother, an EMT, uses a banana bag. A banana bag, or a rally pack, is a bag (laughs) full of IV fluids containing vitamins and minerals. These bags typically contain thiamine, folic acid, and magnesium sulfate, and are usually used to correct nutritional deficiencies or chemical imbalances in the body. The solution has a yellow color, hence the term banana bag. So this week's hangover cure is a banana bag. <laughs> Matt, Matt from Orange City, sni- Orange City snitching on his EMT brother raiding medical supplies over there. Bad form, Matt. I think you're allowed to call the city of Orange, Orange City. I'm pretty sure that's allowed. The future ain't what it used to be. This is how we are all in this together is a platitude that we are hearing a lot lately. We're also being told that we all want to get back to normal. But here's the problem. When it was allegedly normal, we were not all in this together. In fact, during normal, we are all at each other's throats, scratching and clawing for the few crumbs, or under the virus, the few rolls of toilet paper and hand sanitizer left for us rabble who do not have a yacht to anchor offshore while waiting this out. But suddenly... The moment a pandemic hits, we're all magically equals, fighting side by side against something that affects us all equally. Except it doesn't. If you live in an area that has faced generations of environmental racial discrimination, there's a much higher likelihood that you have respiratory ailments created by pollution in your community that would never be allowed in a wealthy white area. And asthma is a real issue when you get coronavirus. It can become deadly, and it has for many children. Here in Chicago, the owners of the old Crawford Coal Plant, which had been shut down due to community activism years ago, decided that on April 11th, in the midst of a global pandemic caused by a pathogen that spreads through your lungs, they thought that was a good time to blow up the plant's old smokestack and cover the neighborhood with dust at 8 in the morning without any warning to the community. Even the mayor seemed surprised that it had happened. Now, we are definitely not all in this together. We never were in this together. And that's the whole freaking point. We were all supposed to be competing with each other. This competition is supposed to be motivating. When motivated, we are then supposed to come up with innovations. Those innovations can then be brought and bought and sold on the market, the profits from which improve the lives of others who can now spend their money on others' innovations, creating a perfect feedback loop of profit. But we're definitely not in that process together. When people come up with ideas to make money, they don't run around sharing them with everyone in some kind of open source platform of share and share alike. No, they keep it to themselves, patent the idea, if possible, to make sure it stays theirs and they can sue anyone who slightly improves upon their idea. That's not being in this or anything together. The old normal was not about togetherness, and the next new normal, when and if the virus subsides, if the next normal tries to get back to that old normal, we'll find the same old normal where we are all in this by ourselves. 
Sure, plenty of people are doing good things, supporting strangers, giving what they can, trying to help others in need, showing concerns for their at-risk neighbors and all the workers who have suddenly become essential. Now that new normal sounds great, but that's not the normal we had before the virus. That's not the normal we are told we want to get back to. That's the new normal that we want to discard for the old normal we fantasize will be returning. Look, we were never all in this together because here in the U.S. far too many are still shell-shocked from decades and decades of the Cold War and anything associated with working collectively, communally, together. If we were all in this together, we would have a universal healthcare system that is accessible to everyone and anyone instead of having people die at home because they do not have enough money to earn the privilege of living. If we were all in this together, we wouldn't have a crumbling infrastructure that is in its most decrepit state in the most vulnerable communities while the wealthiest enjoy all the built-in luxuries we should all be able to appreciate. If we were all in this together, we wouldn't be seeking private alternatives for public education because public schools would be well-funded, maintained, and those who sacrifice so much by being educators would be well rewarded indeed. If we were all in this together, we still wouldn't be seeing the grocery store workers who we depend upon every day before and after and during the virus, but we don't notice until we are threatened by a deadly plague. Those workers would have, would have had latex gloves and face masks from jump, and they still don't, and we're in the freaking fourth month of the virus. If we were all in this together, there wouldn't be such a thing as a gated community, and with those communities popping up faster and faster in the last few decades, we have definitely not been acting like we are in this together, but are trying to make certain we are very much apart. So why now is all the shouting from behind those gates ringing with the message of us suddenly, without warning, being told, insisting we're all in this together? with the people who benefited, the people who profited from the choices and decisions that created the interlinked global threats of a pandemic and climate change, why now that they've grown wealthy off the planet's destruction and promoting that destruction through the constant pursuit of a policy of continuing growth as an economic development model without ever having any concern for the consequences of that development and growth, why now are we suddenly all in this together? How do decades and decades of tax cuts dating back to the Reagan revolution say in any way we're in this together? If we were in this together, we would have all happily contributed to public coffers in order to make everything affordable and accessible so there would be more equality. Instead, 40 years of tax cuts that your parents and their parents giddily supported has made it so the moment students graduate from college, they are burdened with a ton of debt, forcing them to make higher wages, often in helping reproduce the very same economy that now imprisons them, holding them hostage until their debts are paid like an indentured servant. The only difference is, at least indentured servants were promised food, clothing, and shelter in Virginia once their contract expired. Today's workers, with whom the 1% are definitely not all in this together, they don't have the promise of much of anything once their work ends. Pensions are a thing of the past in the U.S., and whatever safety net we had has been torn asunder by all those people are now telling us we're all in this together. If we were all in this together, would Fox News and MSNBC have such diametrically 
opposed points of view, and if if we wanted to be all in this together, would either network have any viewers whatsoever? No, we are not in this together, despite United being the United States' first name. I wish we were in this together, collectively, like a community. The people who are acting like we are all in this together, the good people, seem to believe it, who seem to believe it, with their mutual aid that is helping out those who are desperately in need but are not getting any government support. Those good people are making face masks and getting groceries and providing services. But that's because actions do speak louder than words. Yes, some of us are in this together, but those who are, no, we are not all in this together because if we were, we wouldn't need mutual aid because it would happen naturally. It would always be happening in whatever normal we are experiencing. It's those who keep saying we are all in this together, the loudest, the richest, and the most powerful who want you to believe they are just like you, subtly equal under the virus. They fear the inequality which they enjoy, which is why they prosper, will finally be revealed. So instead, they keep repeating and repeating, we are all in this together. And the saddest part of it is, a lot of people are falling for it, because this is hell coming up. We are being threatened by two great dangers that in reality are only one significant challenge. We'll also have rotten history and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell before the virus. We were already living in a world facing the pending disaster of climate change. Now we have to deal with both the breakdown of the planet's climate and a pandemic. Here to explain how the two are not separate, but very related and linked, Vijay Kolonjavadi is author of the article, The Pandemic is Ecological Breakdown, Different Tempo, Same Song, Comparisons Between the Toll of COVID-19 and Climate Change are not helpful because they view each as two separate things, which originally appeared at Al Jazeera, and you can now find in a long-form version at Uneven Earth. That's unevenearth.org. Welcome to This is Hal Vijay. Hello, Chuck. Thanks for inviting me here. Glad to be here. Thank you for being on the show. Vijay is a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Development Policy at the University of Antwerp and a contributing editor at Uneven Earth. Again, that website is unevenearth.org. And you can find Vijay on Twitter at his last name, Colin Javadi. That's K-O-L-I-N-J-I-V-A-D-I. You write, only a couple months ago, the world was taken aback by unprecedented bushfires in Australia, massive youth movements striking for stronger action to tackle climate change, and a groundswell of protests across the world demanding greater democracy, an end to state oppression, and against debilitating economic austerity in places ranging from Hong Kong to India to Chile respectively. That's the new normal, apparently, that we want to get back to, right? That doesn't sound all that great. What happens when, if when this is all over, Vijay, we, if we find ourselves back in the exact same place we were before? And should that be a goal? Well, I, I think actually we, we probably, well, we certainly will not end up in the same place, regardless of whether we, you know, whether the intended, the intention is to return to normal but I fear that, you know, what we saw in 2019 with some of those with with, uh, you know, these unprecedented uh, environmental 
catastrophes, but also social movements and social um, social unrest is that, you know, they're going to take on a different kind of form that could be further exacerbated by the things that we are seeing with this, with this pandemic. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, returning to normal in that sense is not only in returning to, to those, to that kind of state of unrest and anxiety on a, on a, you know, national and global scale, but, uh, possibly, you know, ramped up on, on a scale that we haven't seen before. You write that COVID-19 felt like it came out of nowhere. The situation and potentially the virus itself is rapidly evolving, has taken world governments as, uh, by surprise and left the stock market reeling. Its emergence, however, makes self-evident the fault lines in global production systems and the ultra-connectivity of our globalized world. Can the global production systems simply either fix itself or be tweaked incrementally, put a Band-Aid on it, and we can move forward with the global production system we had before the virus without causing more viruses? Absolutely not. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, um, you know, that, that sort of quick fix technical solution is, is, is definitely what is being uh, advocated. And I think that, um, you know, we of course we need to, to to push forward to find a vaccine, but but just looking to find a vaccine for this virus is is certainly not um, going to stop future pandemics from emerging um, of this very nature, potentially far more more uh, extreme and more dangerous than this one. And um, again, this this sort of goes back to looking at the root causes of these of these problems, which do very much have to, which very much have to do with with uh, uh, global food production systems and uh, their interconnectivity, the speed and and hyper acceleration by which um, they are moving, the cheapening of labor and of resources to enable these, you know, to enable these, these circuits of production to move at breakneck pace. Um, and if that is, is you know, if, if the idea is to quickly get back to that as, as soon as possible and to erase, you know, what we've experienced right here, then we are going to see, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not actually addressing this problem at all. But you mentioned, and, and, uh, go ahead. And, and of course, just to say, just add that that, that it will uh, exacerbate the, the situation going forward. As you were pointing out, uh, they look for cheap inputs when it comes to the global food production system. They try to keep the costs as low as possible. They try to get the food out into the market as quickly as possible. You mentioned the speed as well. Are all those things absolutely necessary for us to feed the planet? Is the same global production system that you see as causing the pandemic the same global production system that we must have in order to feed the planet? So that's 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 a great question. I think that's the that's the storyline that we're being fed. You know that that if we can get this back to normal. And if we can increase that pace and if we can increase, you know, the productivity, we will ensure that everyone has access to food and is able to to benefit from a system that how it was operating before. But we have seen um, the vast amount of inequality with the food system, not only with I mean, with the food system, but also in general, um, that was the state of the normal before this pandemic. And so and was increasing over time. 
um, to, to fairly astronomical levels, you know, to levels of inequality we've never seen before as a, as a, as a society. And so to say that, you know, that, that we need to, you know, we need to increase that, that, um, you know, that productivity, we need to make those inputs cheaper, we need to get those, those productivity cycles moving faster so that we can actually achieve, uh, everyone will have access to, to food, let's say, that has not materialized, you know, we've not seen, we've seen that materialize only for a very select few. For those, for example, who might be walking down Manhattan or somewhere in central London where they're able to just go into a, into a, um, you know, uh, uh, one of these, you know, eat one of these very quick uh, service places where you, where you can buy a packed sandwich uh, as fast as you can, and the shelf will be filled right away. For those people, yes, that's where it, it works, but it doesn't work for, for the vast majority of people on this planet. So how would the global production system have to change so it would not be vulnerable to crises and also would not spread those crises globally? All we have to do is give up on the live animal market. All we have to do is give up on certain aspects of globalization like uh, eating food and produce that's out of season. Do we just have to make a few minor tweaks and we can move forward? So, no, I don't, I don't know. It's definitely not, not some minor tweaks. I think what we're, what we're talking about here ultimately is, um, and to, to, to forward on to the, to the other um, increasing risks of climate change uh, more broadly, uh, is that we're going to need, you know, this idea of quick, quick uh, tweaks and fixes is not is 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 part of the problem here. You know, we need to. There's a set of relationships and a way of relating to each other and to our world and to the things to making sure that we have the basic needs for future generations, for our current and for future generations. That's going to require a cultural shift that that you know is more than just some some quick tweaks. It's going to um, you know, it's going to require, you know, you mentioned shutting down, shutting down live animal markets. I think that that's an example of a quick, you know, fix that I think is, is, is sorely, is sorely, um, sort of misplaced because it doesn't see, you know, it doesn't under, it doesn't kind of look at broader cultural factors that are at play, but extend beyond these live animal markets. It doesn't look at industrial agriculture systems, how some of those, those, you know, wet markets or trade in wildlife species move in parallel to changes in the, in the agricultural landscape and across landscapes in general associated with industrial agriculture. So it's not as though, you know, we can, we can separate wildlife harvesting and say, oh, if we can just fix that, then we've, we've addressed this problem and we won't have to deal with it again. We have to see how some of these um, sort of um, practices move in parallel with, with the broader systems of production in which we live in. You write the pandemic is part of climate change and therefore our response to it should not be limited to containing the spread of the virus. Normal was already a crisis and so returning to it cannot be an option. What role did climate change, in your opinion, play in either causing or spreading the virus? Because that's the main contention of your piece. Yeah. Um, so I think I think it's it might be useful to step back just from focusing on climate change here, but to focus on um, sort of uh, capital capital capitalism, let's say specifically as 
a, a an ecological process or sort of an ecological regime. I think we we were so used to sort of thinking about ecology and environment as somehow separate from the from the behaviors that humans we humans uh, act within, and specifically the you know the global society um, that we've created. And but yet this this these you know these sort of cycles of, of intensive production on all scales across the globe is itself a sort of ecological regime. You know, we are not outside of nature looking at nature as though it's, you know, some kind of, you know, it's not the outside of us. We, whatever we are doing is very much part of that ecology. And so, um, I think, if we think about it like that, you know, it's not just climate change, but it's all kinds of other elements or aspects of ecological breakdown, which are inter intertwined or interrelated with climate breakdown and intensive agriculture and the ways by which landscapes are being rapidly transformed around the world um, and the 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 frontier, the sort of commodity frontiers that are constantly being moved forward and the potential for humans to to interact in new ways with wildlife and to create the conditions as minuscule or as minute as they may be that may result in the transmission of previously unknown pathogens to be able to trans to to to, to move through these sorts of interrelationships and result in things like pandemics. I mean, the, the likelihood, of course, is very small. But when we look at it on a global scale and we look at the production systems that are associated with, with on the ensemble, associated with climate change, but also ecological breakdown more generally, and, and I, I, I think about intensive agriculture being a particular, particularly notable one here, then we can start to see how, even though that chance is very minor, it's... It, it gets amplified um, because of how in, how systemic uh, some of these um, what we're what we're what we're doing to the planet is. So um, what yeah. what explains that? Uh, just getting back to a point you were making earlier. So what explains that idea of nature being outside of us? What leads to us having this idea where we are not a part of the planet that we're living on? Yeah, I think I think it it you know it goes back to it goes back you know this is something that that goes bef goes beyond and before capitalism specifically it goes back to an idea that you know we are we humans have the ability you know even this idea of of going back to normal is very much an example of this we have this this sort of arrogance or this presumption that we can once again make the world accommodate to our needs that the world that we live on isn't actually we're not actually a part of it we're somehow above it and um if anything this virus has told us well you know slap it's been a major slap in the face and and it's been you know we are you you are part of this world and you know we will move fluidly through your bodies and through your borders and through your schedules and your you know your calendars and your clocks whatever you have because you too are part of this world. So this idea that, that we are, you know, above it, above it all is, yeah, it, it's, it's the sort of modern conceit, which unfortunately, I mean, that it's going to take a lot more than, um, you know, yeah, I want to say it's going to take, it's going to take some, some pretty, pretty, um, deep soul searching to, 
to un, un, unravel and unlearn some of the things associated with that, that myth, this storyline that we are sort of above it all. You cite a recent guest on our show, the uh, biologist and epidemiologist Rob Wallace, and how he argues in his book, Big Farms Make Big Flu, that increasing land grabs by agribusiness from industrialized countries has pushed deforestation and land conversion into overdrive for faster and cheaper food production. And you add the transformation of vast areas of land into rationalized production factories provides ideal conditions for well-adopted pathogens to thrive. Any argument that claims pathogens and plagues have always existed across history will neutralize the globalized nature of current land degradation and hyperconnectivity, allowing diseases to spread faster and further than ever before. So if we believe plagues have always happened, and they always will, we just have to deal with it, you end up in a world that can only be imagined by people like uh, Trump's economic advisor, Stephen Moore, who asked recently why we cannot all simply wear spacesuits so we can get the economy up and going again without realizing we can't even get medical face masks to everyone so getting everyone spacesuits is not likely and that one of the great things about living on earth is we don't have to wear spacesuits like we're on the moon so has this virus is this the opening of pandora's box and we'll never be able to get the virus the pandemic back inside yeah, I mean, I, I, um, you know, if you think of the, the the virus as sort of a metaphor as well, not just the virus, you know, we we will get the virus under control. But what I fear about this pandemic is that it normalizes, and you know, we were talking about normal returning to normal, and but what I fear is that returning, you know, this, it, it normalizes a state of affairs where precarity, I mean, obviously precarity was always there, but now we've reached a new level of sort of health, global health and ecological precarity, which is just going to be, you know, it's going to be normalized to the extent like precisely, precisely, you know, that if we can just, those who are wearing their, their spacesuits are the ones who are going to get jobs and survive. You know, we're, they're the ones who are going to manage. And, and as continual crises associated with climate change continue to pop up, that normalization process is what I really, really fear is going to continue to be the storyline, the myth, because, you know, we're not willing to, to uh, you know, um, do some of that soul searching in relation to that myth. We're so, so hell bent on, on the arrogance of it all. So, this is this is this is a, a very 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 deep seated concern I think um, and um, you know as long as 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 long as we continue to 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 see the impacts of climate change and to raise the alert um, make a clarion call about what impacts climate change could have in the very near future what this virus what this pandemic is telling us is that you know you can just you know wash your hands and I think as I mentioned, wash your hands and just sort of stay indoors and keep working. And, you know, there will be some people who who's working, you know, whose labor is continuously precarious and will be made to to support the rest of society, as we're seeing right now. Um, yeah, so just just to say, I think that that I think this this pandemic provides a, offers us a very sobering and very, you know, scary uh, portrait of what normal means and what normal is now being made to look like.
You, you write that the massive scale wildlife breeding of peacocks, pangolins, civet cats, wild geese, and boar, among many others, is a $74 billion industry and has been viewed as a get-rich-quick scheme for China's rural population. Is it fair to say the virus is an unintended consequence of China's rural population's attempt to make money, a population that may be desperate and impoverished? Can we chalk all this off to an innocent mistake made by Chinese farmers with unintended consequences? So, yeah, just, I mean, I guess to clarify, if, the, if, the, if you mean, you know, kind of looking at the situation in terms of what happened specifically in China um, in relation to the emergence of this virus, I would say, no, you cannot, um, you, you cannot put the blame directly, you cannot put the blame specifically on, on, on them, you know, and it's the same reason why you can't put the blame on individuals for ecological crisis. You can't blame, I mean, you can put the blame on, you know, you can say that someone who's, who's flying around the world, you know, five times a year and more, um, is more likely to be creating the conditions for climate change or someone's lifestyle based on lifestyle choices. But ultimately we're talking about a systemic problem here. Um, that's rooted in our in capital uh, in in this sort of hetero patriarchal uh, capital system that we live in. So I don't I don't think you know it's you know the same thing could have happened as well. It could have emerged out of uh, a market in 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 Western Africa, for example, um, which you know where similar kinds of viruses have emerged in recent past and could have easily become a global pandemic there as well. So I don't think, I really don't think that one can say, and, and I mean, it could also have happened from the perming of melt, per, uh, melting of permafrost in, 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 um, in Russia, for example, where, where in the past anthrax had been, had, had, had arrived or had, had been um, sort of spread as a result of melting permafrost there. So it, it, these are all, these are just some examples of where, where ecological and or social impacts or interrelations with the world could have resulted in a pandemic of this nature that isn't specific to China or any other specific, you know, culture. And I think it's, it's really dangerous and extremely, extremely, um, yeah, it is extremely dangerous to be seeing these kinds of remarks um, being placed on, on, on specific people or specific cultural practices. I think we have to look at we have to look deeper than that at this point. So do you see climate change denialism in the Trump administration's response to COVID-19? And if you do, how can climate change denialism affect a government's response to a pandemic? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely would see would see that denialism. I mean, it was already there even before in, in Trump's regime, even before any of this. And, you know, the fact that that environmental policies that the EPA has basically become redundant, even not even ex barely existent uh, at this point um, uh, in, in, in relation to the pandemic shows that there is no no intention to see climate change as anything related to this pandemic. Um, and I, in fact, it's it's hard pressed to even see that the administration is seeing this as anything as as even being a health crisis, actually. It seems like they're taking this as purely an economic crisis, um, which clearly it isn't. You know, it's 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 this isn't even about an economic crisis. It's it is about 
the ultra wealthy concerned about making sure ensuring that their profits are going to be sustained that's it it's not if it was if it was even just an economic crisis then it would be focusing on ensuring that everyone has basic services and that those basic services are put into place but that priority isn't even there to begin with so going so i've just like jumped from climate to health to economic but just going back to the climate crisis absolutely not i don't see that um the administration and in many administrations you know not just in the us but that 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 link or that prioritization doesn't seem to be there that the you know um there are some some who are saying that we need to the eu for example is maintaining their their commitment towards a green new deal uh, especially at this time given that there is a pandemic so we do see that there is some some links being made but it's it's really not being given the priority that it perhaps could to avoid uh pandemics of this nature happening in the future you also point out that somehow like magic with the covid-19 pandemic safeguards in the way of protection for healthcare professionals grocery store workers personal protective equipment and investment in health research that was non lucrative just 3 months ago is suddenly a societal priority that is for now once the pandemic ends rest assured capitalism has no intentions of keeping it at bay can capitalism be profitable be successful and fight the pandemic? Why can't capitalism simply make protection against future pandemics, make safeguards profitable so we can all be safe? Yeah, that, that's definitely something that capitalism can do. And, you know, there are those who are making profit off of it right now, you know, by, by um, producing the, the kinds of PPE that are necessary for responding to the, to the, current, to the current moment. Um, the problem is, is that once what we've seen is that capitalism doesn't think about long-term consequences of its actions. It only looks at, it only thinks about short-term profits. So as soon as the pandemic is over, capitalism will no longer see it lucrative. And when I were talking about capitalism, we're talking about those, those, those entities, those private enterprises that are engaged in in um, providing public providing services that are necessary or equipment or goods for people um, those those will no longer be seen as lucrative in a time when there isn't a pandemic and you know when we we, we already see this with respects to pharmaceutical companies that have simply failed to invest in um, looking at at new antibiotics or looking at the the impacts of antibiotic resistance um, um, as a result of 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 you know intensive agricultural production of certain um, for for livestock species, for example, we see that there hasn't been that kind of commitment in times of normality. Let's say so. I think in a short term, yes, it can be seen as very profitable. But I don't. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not. I don't have the the faith that capitalism would be be uh, able to do both. Would be able to think long term. Um, while also main, making sure that it's attaining short-term profits, which is really what it's about. Is the problem that we just don't hold those who profit from capitalism that it has, causes uh, uh, consequences that we would rather that they did not cause? Is the problem that we just don't hold those people responsible? Have we essentially eliminated risk? And what happens when you eliminate risk from capitalism? So, I mean, 
holding risk is also an impediment or an obstacle to profit. You want to make sure that, you know, if you if you put in safeguards, if you're putting in policies or regulations or any kind of safeguard to ensure longer term well-being. And you, know, you can think of environmental policies, for example, um, that have been implemented on in 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 agricultural land, for example. But in a global competitive market, all of those those safeguards immediately and instantly become impediments to 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 profit because somebody else is going to be able to produce whatever you're producing at a faster rate without that obstacle, without that impediment somewhere else in the world. And so ultimately, those kinds of safeguards are always seen as um, end up end up being seen as a sort of. Um, you know, impediments, unless, of course, you have, you know, very strong economic powers or blocks that are able to put in those kinds of safeguards and still maintain, you know, their own well-being and not have to worry about, um, you know, the, the fallout, the economic fallout associated with having done that. And that's what we see in Europe. We see that with European Union policies and safeguards um, and we see that in, in relatively developed countries, you know, in these overly developed countries, I would say, that have historically, you know, gained their wealth as a result of extraction from other places and exploitation and oppression of other people. And that's how they're able to maintain that. But as in, a, in a purely market, in the sort of cutthroat um, capital market that we see, we just don't have, you know, many countries do not have the... Um, don't have the privilege to be able to put in those kinds of safeguards and to be able to take on certain levels of risk over others. You also have this really fascinating view of time, and I want to make sure we talk about this. You write how a major distinction between COVID-19 and climate change has to do with how we perceive time and the temporal effects of both. A recent study raised an important concern of attempting to respond to climate change on a time scale that is convenient to society, in other words, clocks and calendars, but was absol- has absolutely no relation to the time scales of changes we are actually witnessing with climate change. The fact that whole ice sheets melting, 2030 sustainable development goals and election years appear in unison as daily news stories illustrate the temporal disconnect with how society is responding to the changes occurring in our world. It is thoroughly arrogant to assume climate change, like COVID-19, is going to respond to our schedules. What happens to COVID-19 and what happens to climate change when it meets the temporal nature of breaking news? How does the framework, that lens, potentially lead to any misunderstanding we have about pandemics or global warming? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I think that I think you know when when the impacts of the pandemic or when we see sort of yeah when we see the the yeah the impacts or the fallout of climate change actually happening in front of our eyes, um, or we see in, or the pandemic, climate change, or ecological breakdown. What tends to happen is um, it just gets neutralized in a way when it appears in our news because we're not able to we're not able to feel the immensity and the intensity of that change that has happened. So if we understand time, I mean, time is really a perception of change. 
Um, and so when that perception of change is qualitative, which is obviously qualitatively very, very different when we see, you know, the Larsen Sea ice sheet melting off of Antarctica, something that wouldn't happen for, you know, for, for, for thousands of years. Or, for example, the fact that, you know, scientists are saying that in by 2030, we would be we would be experiencing a climate that was similar to the mid Pliocene era of 300 million years ago. You know, these kinds of temporal changes are so extreme but as soon as they fall into our news and as soon as they get you know um shared with everything else that we're experiencing and as soon as they get embedded within you know election cycles of four years and you know sustainable development goals and and other kinds of strategies that we put in place that are again you know let's accommodate the world to our needs not let's accommodate ourselves to what we're experiencing in the world you know, then then what ends up happening is those daily news stories just get neutralized and people are left um, kind of made to be, you know, paralyzed. You know, how do you respond when when what you should be responding to would make you, you know, jump out of your seat and make you almost like jump out the window, you know, like but you can't because you're you're just like looking at the news like any other news story of the day. And so so time, I think, is a very it's a very important, you know, element here, you know, we're the, the very fact that, you know, at this moment, governments are sort of walking on that tightrope, um, trying to look after the public needs in relation to the pandemic, but also trying to reinstate normality and putting economies back into 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 order, um, or getting them the engine running again, is an example there of that temporal distinction. You know, it's kind of like, well, we want to live in the moment that we're experiencing, but also we want to gain control of, of, you know, of, of time, of the temporal rhythms that the way the actual world operates to be back on in our favor. So you see that, you know, that tightrope, that balancing act that's happening right now all over the world, which was the same balancing act that we saw with climate change as well. Um, the the it, it it's the same it's the same situation that we're trying to negotiate with time we're trying to we're trying to get it to fit into our rhythms um and and when we when i say our rhythms into the rhythms of capital production because it it has to do with you know if we think about work and leisure both of those thinking about some of the the the, the ideas of ep thompson um, from the late 60s, looking at industrial work, work culture, time is really just about capital, uh, the way capital moves and capital is produced and accumulated um, in its um, sort of rhythmic periodicity. So, so this is, this is, it's, it's, um, it's definitely something that we're, we, we're not able to, to act upon. And um, I think looking at this temporal dimension is extremely important because the failure to, to, to understand that the specific temporalities of certain um, changes, whether they are climatic, whether they are, you know, for example, with this, this with, with uh, COVID-19, they don't operate within the temporalities that we impose on them. So we have to pay attention to the temporalities that they work upon. Or they move through space and and then act accordingly to those temporalities. So, time—that's a really interesting point. That time is an implement of control, and we cannot control the virus. But if we 
put up deadlines for sheltering in place. We give people dates as to when they might be able to go outside again. At least we'll have this, I, this sense that we have some control over the virus, even though we do not. So, Vijay, is it better or worse for the government to feign that control? Does that kind of control mislead the public, or does it at least help them with morale in a time of global crisis? Do we need to dupe ourselves into believing we have control, or does that lead to a poor public response? Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting dilemma there. I think it's probably a little bit of both. You know, I think that um, wanting to, you know, ensuring that that morale is there is also a very stabilizing thing and a very important thing because, of course, like, you know, to be desynchronized, I guess, let's say, from our, from the temporal rhythms of capital of normality, let's say, is, is very destabilizing for a lot of people. Um, and so then, so there, there is an element there that requires sort of finding those rhythms again that allow us to understand that we can we can make sense of what we're dealing with but at the same time going too far along that line which is also what we're seeing is means that you know that we can't it it again paralyzes us to be able to make systemic change because it prevents us from actually taking the moment this specific moment that we're living in to do that sort of soul-searching work to be able to reinstate or to live in different kinds of temporal rhythms that are more appropriate to the times that we are in and that we have been living in prior to this pandemic and that we'll continue to live in as a result of ecological breakdown, which even if we were to, you know, change our systems entirely, which is very unrealistic, but assume that just ideally assume that we did, we had a different kind of, of, um, of, of society, a completely different society, one that was based on collective well-being, let's say, then, then we would still in, we would still be confronted with the impacts of climate change. We would still be confronted with the impacts of ecological breakdown that that themselves will manifest in the years to come and in the decades to come. So, um, so I think it's it's probably a little bit of both in the sense that um, we need to we need to we need to kind of feel like we can make sense of what's going on somehow, but at the same time not too much sense that we are just reproducing the same thing while in self isolation and while in you know maintaining certain um, inequalities that do exist between workers and between um, you know. Uh, especially women and also racialized people. You write the fact that CO2 emissions have declined so drastically in concert with the reduced flight demand and manufacturing activity in China provides striking evidence of how economic growth is directly responsible for the existential impacts that two and three degrees of warming would cause to society. Economic growth causes climate change, and the entire planet is currently dependent upon an economic growth development model. So what happens when we no longer live on a development model of constant growth? Does How much does will that have an impact on what we call our quality of life? Will we have to suffer under a lack of economic growth? Well, first of all, I just want to mention very quickly that because you you raised that line, um, that this pandemic really, really blows out of the water the idea that we can have economic growth and um, reduced environmental impact at the same time. You know, 
this that has been the myth that has been tooted around for the last you know decade you know with green growth um with renewable you know energy systems and all of these kinds of um this sort of yeah the sort of narrative around environmental um su sustainable development and and a green economy you know that we can have both of these at the same time i think that this this has really really showed uh, the true colors that um you know the so the economic growth that is being counted on or that is being considered just does not correspond or align with um, reduced ecological degradation. We're actually seeing the opposite of that relationship right now. Um, so um, yeah, so so th that's an important element to 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 uh, consider. Um, I do think that. Um, um, I, I, sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to, to repeat that last bit that you you asked me uh, there. That's all right. I, 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 we're running I'm short on time, and I want to make sure that I get to these. Uh, well, because you were saying that uh, economic growth is the problem that's causing climate change. So to what extent can we have an enjoyable life, a life that is oh, right. doesn't have a quality of life that's undermined when we are not pursuing growth? Right. So I think just very briefly just to say that, you know, the economic growth that is being considered again is we're looking at GDP growth and that's not, that's not, you know, the question wasn't about, it was about how, how that economic growth was being distributed. So it doesn't matter whether that economic growth measured purely as, as GDP was rising or falling. We could be in a recession, but if we're all, you know, we're all relatively, we're, we were all, if that, that recession was equally distributed, then it wouldn't necessarily have that much of an impact on our well-being. And so that's something that I think we should pay attention to here. This isn't just about um, a trade-off between economic growth and reduced well-being. We can still have well-being without necessarily being, you know, yeah, without necessarily having, you know, um, stock market figure, figures going over the roof. I think this is also a myth that, that is being that's that we're hearing in the news and that is being promoted with this pandemic and is just completely false. So I want to ask you one kind of feel good question before uh, I ask, have to ask you a really horrible question. So you write plan D growth can also be facilitated by solidarity networks to support especially elderly neighbors and meeting their needs. A genuine love in the time of coronavirus moment, so to speak. This is the this idea of plan D growth instead of pursuing growth, a plan D growth. Such groups have already spontaneously emerged in cities around the world from Seattle to Montreal, from Wuhan to Gothenburg and London. We've heard of crony capitalism. Well, now corona capitalism has become a thing. Obviously, the conditions surrounding COVID-19 are not ideal for the uh, just climate transition that is so badly needed, but the rapid and urgent actions in response to the virus and the inspiring examples of mutual aid also illustrate the society is more than capable of acting collectively in time to what it is experiencing. Is the pandemic revealing then people have far more power than they may have thought? Yes, definitely it is. I think, um, I mean, this, I think that a lot of those systems of solidarity already existed, you know, prior to the pandemic, and they just sort of became activated or signaled as a result of this. So, 
and and I think that there is a that's sort of a positive feedback potential. You know, when people start to talk to their neighbors and start to feel that they can contribute at a time when people are in need, then it it provides meaning to people's lives. It, it creates new connections. It fosters um, new ways of, of relating to each other and to, to those who we might not have, you know, been in, so engaged with in the past. And, it, and it, it, it actually uplifts, you know, whole people's lives. And we can see that on, on the level of whole communities, um, even whole cities. And, it could, and it's happening all over the world. Um, so it's it's something to to remember, you know, this is something to we, we should never forget, you know, obviously, the conditions are going to change and situations are going to change and we're going to have, you know, the, the system that we're living in is going to try and force us to return to normal, it's going to try and basically try to to expunge this memory out of our minds and make us, rem- you know, go back into that this way of thinking where we should be alienated from each other and we should not be engaging with each other. And so that's something we, sh- we should never forget. You know, we should build off of this momentum and use it as a sort of, um, you know, grounded collective power on the ground to, to fight the systems of capital and to put pressure on our state, national, our, our national local governments and local governments to force them to pay attention to the people and the people's needs. One last question for you, Vijay. We've been speaking with Vijay Colin Javadi. He is author of the article, the, This Pandemic is Ecological Breakdown, which you can find at unevenearth.org. And you can find Vijay on Twitter at Colin Javadi. That's K-O-L-I-N-J-I-V-A-D-I. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, indeed, the coronavirus will come roaring back in the form of the most punitive structural adjustment the world may see since the 1980s. For example, the World Bank Group has recently stated that structural adjustment reforms will need to be implemented to recover from COVID-19, including requirements for loans being tied to doing away with excessive regulations, subsidies, licensing regimes, trade protection to foster markets, choice, and faster growth prospects. Is the World Bank's plan then for the new normal post-virus to be more austerity and more deregulation, the very programs that you and Rob Wallace argue got us into the pandemic in the first place? And do we have any say in the matter? Do we have a choice? Well, yeah, I I mean, that is uh, definitely the question from hell, I guess, uh, because the response would be, you know, if we were to to adhere to to the World Bank's, um, I think it's uh, David Malpass who made that comment, um, you know, if if we were to adhere to to that, to that prospect, then yes, that will result in a a very hellish situation. And um, I mean, again, I don't think, unfortunately, I don't feel that this is the kind of conversation that we're having at the level of our, uh, uh, we're not having this conversation enough, you know, obviously, we have to think about the daily needs of, you know, ensuring the, the, the prevention of the propagation of this virus, and to ensure that essential workers are, you know, receiving the care and the the support that they need at this particular time. And, you know, there's so many other immediate preoccupations, but, but at the same time, we cannot, you know, 
th that outcome, that that austerity, that severe austerity that is waiting for us, you know, that was, you know, that has already been announced even just a couple days ago or a couple weeks ago, you know, very shortly. They did. They wasted no time. You know, they literally within two weeks of, of the start of global lockdowns, this was a message that came out. And, you know, this comes at a time when many countries are seeking IMF loans to be able to withstand the economic crisis that they're facing now. And so we're not even we're, we were never given the choice. We were not given the choice, uh, you know, to begin with. You know, the G20 sits in their closed room, closed roomed meetings. And, you know, this is the clearest indication that normality, the normality that we're trying so desperately to, to obtain is a normality which is deadening. And, um, you know, we we need to now more than ever rise up and demand to demand to our governments and demand in our within our society that this is not replicated and that we need to realize that as you point out in your article that as quickly as the pandemic hit effects from climate change can hit just as fast and so this is our first real test of how we are going to react to those quick and dramatic and drastic changes and so far we're not doing all that great on this pop quiz Vijay, I really appreciate you being on the show. This is fantastic writing, and again, you're one of the many guests that we have on a list that we are now going to be bugging for the rest of your life to have come back mm -hmm. on our show. So thank you very much for being on this week. Thank you so much, Chuck, for having me. It's right. been a pleasure. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On April 30th, 1956, 64 years ago this Thursday, Senator Albert Barkley, a liberal Democrat from West Virginia, was giving a speech at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. Barkley had previously been vice president under Harry Truman and had served in both the Senate and the House of Representatives before that. But his brief presidential candidacy in 1952 had been dogged by accusations that at age 74 he was too old and he lost the Democratic nomination that year to Adlai Stevenson who went on to be defeated by Dwight Eisenhower in the general election. For those of you keeping score at home, President Trump will be 74 in June and Joe Biden is 77 which means whoever is elected in the fall will be the oldest person to be elected President of the United States proving yet again that American democracy really has its thumb on the weakening pulse of America. Then, after retiring from politics, Barkley had been urged by party leaders in Kentucky to make another run for the U.S. Senate. And in 1954, he won, apparently, at the age of 76, having gone out of his way to show great vigor despite his age, campaigning as many as 16 hours a day. Wow. Feel-good story in rotten history. Go figure. Now, at age 78, Barkley was a senator again and was much in demand as a public speaker and in Lexington just as he was reaching the conclusion of the speech at Washington and Lee University, Barkley suffered a heart attack on stage and dropped dead. Apparently, you cannot stay alive on vigor alone, although I heard you can protect yourself from the coronavirus if it's injected. In Rotten History, May 1st, 1947, 73 years ago this Friday, at Portella della Ginestra, a mountain pass in Sicily, hundreds of 
Local peasant farmers were gearing up for their annual Workers' May Day parade. And you know how capital is about worker parades, so this will get rotten and fast. The celebration promised to be even bigger and more jazzy than usual. First time jazzy has been in a rotten history. Because just 12 days earlier, in an election for the Sicilian Governing Assembly, a coalition slate of candidates from the Italian Communist and Socialist parties had pulled a stunning upset over the Christian Democrats and monarchists, so May Day was going to be a blast. Their victory now fired speculation across bombed-out post-war Italy that a national election might soon bring the Italian communists to power, making party leader Palmiro Togliatti the new prime minister and putting a major land distribution scheme into play. To open the festivities at Portella della Dunastra, a local Communist Party official rose to address the crowd. Just as he began to speak, he was interrupted rudely by machine gun fire coming from the surrounding hills. Eleven people were killed in the unprovoked attack, and more than 30 were wounded. The bloodshed was ordered by a Sicilian bandit named Salvatore Giulito, Giuliano, Salvatore Giuliano, who had been viewed by poverty-stricken Sicilians as a Robin Hood figure. Probably gunning them down isn't going to help. And had even become something of a media celebrity in Italy and abroad. But... This massacre changed everything, as Giuliano was now seen as acting on behalf of Sicilian landowners, the mafia, and other right-wing political elements. So, commies win an election, commies celebrate, and a local Robin Hood turns out to be working for the mob and commits a massacre. The incident provoked a violent debate in the Italian parliament. Communist Party leader Togliatti never became prime minister but would survive an assassination attempt the following year. Well, they really did not want the Communist Party to come to power in Italy. Two years after that, in 1950, Robin Hood turned mafia hitman Giuliano himself was shot dead by a member of his own outlaw gang. Giuliano's assailant would go to prison and later die there after drinking a cup of coffee laced with strychnine. So I says to myself, I says, Self, did Giuliano kill himself? commit suicide by putting strychnine in his coffee? How would you get strychnine? Or was he poisoned and murdered? Ronaldo doesn't say here in Rotten History. But here's what it says at Wikipedia to make it even more uncertain as to Giuliano's demise. Over the years, doubts about Giuliano's death have been expressed. According to some, Giuliano fled from Sicily to Tunis and went on to live in the U.S. The historian Giuseppe Casarebea son of one of the victims of Giuliano, compiled material to demonstrate that the body buried as Giuliano belonged to someone else. On October 15, 2010, the public prosecutor's office in Palermo decided to exhume the body and compare its DNA with living relatives of Giuliano. The DNA test showed only a 90% likelihood that the skeleton belongs to Giuliano. The DNA match between the skeleton and Giuliano's relations mean that Sicilian prosecutors are now archiving the probe they opened in 2010 into the possibility that someone was murdered and passed off as Giuliano. So it looks like Giuliano did die from strychnine in his coffee in prison, but still, we don't know. Murder? Suicide? So who knows? All I know is that's rotten history, and this is hell. Alex, please share with us the rest of this week's guest because you and I are both very excited about this week's lineup. Uh, Delar Dirick will be back on the show to talk about her chapter, 
Only with you, this broom will fly. Rojava, magic, and sweeping away the state inside us all. And that's in the new Cindy Milstein collection, Deciding for Ourselves, The Promise of Direct Democracy, which we talked with Cindy about last week. If you haven't heard that one, it's really good. And on Wednesday, Ibram X. Kendi will be back on the show to talk about his uh, Atlantic piece, Stop Blaming Black People for Dying of the Coronavirus. New data from 29 states confirm the extent of the racial disparities. And then finally Thursday, Laura Carlson be back on to talk about uh COVID-19 in Mexico and Mexican politics and uh Jeffy so is anybody giving a shit about having somebody on who wrote an article for the Atlantic yet oh just me (laughs) (laughs) thanks to Vijay thanks to Alex thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History special thanks to Theron Humiston as always and Richard Norwood for his work on the archives I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Tomorrow we'll be revealing this week's question from hell. And as uh, Alex was just saying, we are going to have the return of Delar Derek, who's going to tell us about Rojava and, yes, different ways in which the nation-state is being challenged around the world. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Until... Next time, Truly Revolting Radio, this is Hell. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more Interview Hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.